Two years ago, Neil King Jr. did something remarkable. After a long and successful career as a journalist, most recently at the Wall Street Journal, having recently become cancer-free, at the age of 61, Neil stepped outside his front door in downtown Washington, D.C., and he walked north. Well, a little west, too, and it points east and probably a little bit of south, but mainly north. One step at a time, Neil walked from Washington, D.C. to New York City. It took him about a month, and it gave rise to a remarkable work of nonfiction telling the story of what he saw in his book, American Ramble. I loved reading his book, which came out just this spring, and I highly recommend you obtain a copy for yourself, whether hardcover or Kindle ebook, because I believe you'll love it too. I think this week's podcast will show you why. It's our annual Authors in August series. I'm delighted to kick it off with an American Ramble this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy August. Before getting into American Ramble with my guest this week, Neil King Jr., I just want to mention ahead of time, next week on this podcast, our second author in August will be Sonny Vanderbeck. Sonny, the author of the book Selling Without Selling Out, speaking here not about the stock market, but about one's business. Maybe you are a small business person. Maybe you started it yourself. Maybe you inherited one a few generations old. Sonny has deep experience thinking about and helping others sell their businesses, in his words, without selling out. So we look forward to having Sonny Vanderbeck on Rule Breaker Investing next week. Neil King Jr. is a former national political reporter and editor for the Wall Street Journal. He was deeply involved in the coverage of 9-11 that won the journal the Pulitzer Prize. He's also written for the New York Times, the Atlantic, and other publications. American Ramble is his first book. A Colorado native, Neil lives in Washington, D.C. Neil, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. It's great to be with you, David. Pleasure. There's certainly a, a Thoreauvian feel to your journey and your book, Neil, and even very much at certain points in the words themselves. You were obviously aware of this as you went, because starting with page three, you referenced Thoreau directly using these words, and I quote, My intent, like his, was to take a singular interest in all I encountered, to turn my attentions away from the noxious chatter of Washington, the tribal feuding on television and computer screens, and care only for the particularities I found along the way, to shrink my horizons to that of a walking man, and to root my views of the world in what I encountered step by step, to honor and respect what I saw, end quote. Yep. You know, I was referring to Thoreau's uh, first book, 10 Days on the Concord and Merrimack River. And you know, if you look at that book, which was not a great seller, by the way, even though it's still in print now, it's just filled with minute observations. He went out for 10 days with his brother to paddle those rivers and to look at things and to lay down and make a record of where things stood at that moment of that season of that year. And, you know, he was a great observer among a whole host of great observers from the 19th century and earlier. And a lot of the the book is a bit of a tip of the hat to the powers of observation, the powers of attentiveness, and just the 
the, I don't know, the penchant for taking time to go see things. Neil, your subtitle is A Walk of Memory and Renewal. Could you refresh our memory a bit? This was the spring of 2021. What was happening for you personally and for Americans collectively? Yeah, you know, I kind of like to say that I was coming out of my own illness at that time. I had had a cancer scare a few years before that, which I had successfully beaten back that had altered my sense of uh, time in many ways and even my sense of uh, wonder, I think you could say. And, you know, at the end of March of 2021, we collectively as a country and our world were coming out of our own collective illness and that we were beating back the whole COVID, um, you know, tragedy of the year before. We thought we thought we were coming out of it. I had been vaccinated. Most people had. Masks were coming off. And I walked out my door on the 29th of March um, into a world, by the way, that was a profoundly different one than the one I was going to walk into exactly a year before. And so much had happened. The killing of George Floyd, the huge debate over statues, who deserves a statue, the tearing down of statues, the contested election, the insurrection nine blocks from my house. So all that, that's a short list, was fodder for thought when I walked out my door. Yeah. Mark Penn, who was part of Authors in August in 2018 when we discussed his book, Micro Trends Squared, wrote the following. And my question for you, Neil, is agree or disagree? Here we go. And I quote, we need to encourage every rising cloistered college student to take a trip one summer, not to Israel or France, but across America for six weeks. We have become so siloed that Americans simply don't know America end quote. Profoundly agree. Profoundly agree. You know, I come from a generation where, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, where uh, people still hitchhiked and hitchhiking died. I don't know what its official death date was, but it was like 1983 or something like that. And, you know, that was the ultimate act of trust. And a lot of people now would be like, oh my God, how could you possibly do that? But I crossed the country multiple times in that fashion. And, you know, you get to know the country, not just physically, and its layout, but the mixture of its people quite well when you do that. And I've done trips like that a multitude of times, and it makes a huge difference in understanding this place, which is sort of beyond any of our ken to actually understand it, but it certainly, you know, uh, fleshes out your, your feel for it. One thing I can't remember that much from the book, and I think it's because it's not in the book, not just my bad memory, although it could be the latter, but Neil, I, I don't recall you sharing too much of your previous rambles over the course of your 60-some years. You just mentioned hitchhiking. Can you throw out some of the other places that you've walked or other experiences you had as a younger man? Yeah, I mean, and this plays into it because, uh, you know, I'm, I've been good at this kind of thing and drawn to it for a long time. Um, you know, I, yes, I did a lot of hitchhiking and wandering around uh, when I was young. I took a trip in between two years of college, I took off and I traveled around the world for a year and a half, um, working in Asia, working in France, working in Germany. Um, you know, I've taken trips where when I was at Columbia University, I just went to the Port Authority, bought a bus ticket to Laredo and spent the whole summer, you know, traveling through Mexico and Central America, just sort of no plans, taking buses, taking trains, even walking, even hitchhiking down there. So, you know, and as a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal overseas, I traveled to probably 50 different countries. So, you know, 
to that extent, when it comes to chatting somebody up at the end of their driveway in Pennsylvania or something, I'm pretty adept at that kind of thing. Hmm. You know, a big part of my enjoyment of your book came from never quite being sure who or what was going to be around the next bend in the road. I was reminded of one of my favorite comic novels, which is Three Men in a Boat by Jerome Jerome. I don't know if you've ever read that. Have you? I don't know. I don't know that book. Three Men in a Boat by Jerome Jerome. Well, it's similarly itinerant in its nature. It has surprise people in surprise situations popping up all along the journey. But Jerome's journey up the Thames River was fictional. Yours was, of course, real. Neil, how about giving us a couple of examples of colorful moments, people or circumstances that you encountered around that next bend that may still surprise you to think about now two years later? Yeah, one of the ones that really kind of set the tenor for the walk was, oddly enough, on the second day, I'm walking in northern Maryland, a little ways outside of Baltimore. I run into a kind of mysterious older couple when I'm having to take a detour. Um, we get to talking. They're curious about my walk. I tell them where they're, they're where I'm going. They say, Ephrata? That's a town in Pennsylvania. We used to live in Ephrata in a, in a farmhouse next to some a family named Hoover's and it was on Crooked Lane and we haven't seen them for years and we don't know if they're still there or still well. <laughs> and I said, well, wait a minute, I'm going there. I can find out. I'll look them up. I'll give them good tidings. And they were like, you will? And so as I joke, you know, I became a messenger upon um, that conversation. And off I went. Eight days later, I came down Crooked Lane. I found the Hoover's, the son and father and son, they were astonished to see me. They were old order Mennonites. Um, they don't have a lot of chance visitors out of nowhere. And I pass along the good regards and the, the continued health of these people they hadn't been in touch with for a long time. You know, it was there was many, many examples of that. I met a, a guy named Ted along his drive, I think the next day, African-American guy out getting his garbage. He looked at me. I told him where I was coming from. He digested a few other facts, and he launched into a sermon um, that was basically telling me that I was on a holy walk to retune myself and retune the nation. And I was like, Ted, that's putting a lot of burden on me to think I'm going to retune the nation. But, you know, he was like, we need to be healed. We've been through a lot because of this last year. You're out to heal us. Mm. You know, as I read the book, Neil, I was partly wondering— uh, how much of the course you had pre-laid out. I don't think you ever really went into that explicitly. I was also wondering at different points whether you're using GPS, smartphone, how much of that technology were you availing yourself versus, let's say, the 19th century Henry David Thoreau. I was curious about both the mapping of it in terms of planning it out, but also live map in your hand as you go. Yeah, so... Because I had planned this um, walk fairly meticulously a year before, and then I had another year to even you know more <laughs> fine tune it, I um, it was very thought out in that regard, and it, I wanted it to be because I wanted to to explore a variety of themes. I wanted to meet people who understood their place, um, historians, archaeologists, um, activists of different kinds, mayors. So I had people arranged to meet, but every day had ample time built within it that was the walking time, the getting from place to place time where anything could happen. And when it comes to the mapping, I had pretty much determined what course I was going to take. But in terms of the actual 
I'll take a right here. I'll take a left there. The little tiny roads I took, and I almost always took little tiny roads. <laughs> that was all um, by phone, really, for the most part. And uh, just because they're, those things do that kind of thing effectively. I did have paper maps with me. I did consult them occasionally, but the phone um, does it well, I have to say. And I, and I, you know, I was not distracted by the thing, but I used it as my, my guidance system. Yeah. I like the phrase little tiny roads, and you certainly did walk on many of them. I think when we hear of somebody, and you're the only one I know who's done this, who has walked from Washington, D.C. to New York City, we're imagining, oh, those are big cities, and surely uh, the Northeast is full of cities. But really, you were seeing far more country mice in introducing us to many more country mice than city mice in your book. Yeah, it's funny. I walk through what's really the most crowded, congested part of the country. Um, and yet I went first straight north to York, Pennsylvania. And outside of Philadelphia, that was the largest town I went through until I got to New York. Um, and, you know, that was by choice. I decided to go. The whole walk was 330 miles. If you go straight to New York, it's what, 230 miles or something. So, um, you know, I took a a roundabout way. And I, I very much wanted to go through that area of Pennsylvania that was and still is a place of great experimentation. You know, the Anabaptist area of Lancaster County. I wanted to cross the Susquehanna over a famous bridge. I wanted to spend some time in New York. I wanted to go up over the Mason-Dixon line at a very meaningful part of that very meaningful line. So there was a great deliberateness in the route I took. Fantastic. And indeed, a personal highlight for me was your time in and around York and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In many ways, Neil, and you can speak to this, I, I see those chapters as the centerpiece of your book. I think one of the reasons, not the only one, by the way, but one is the time that you spent with the plain folk, Amish, Mennonites, people we as tourists may see in a horse and buggy or remember from the movie Witness, but very few of us have actually spent time with them in their community, learning from rather than just observing them. This was a special treat for you, I know, Neil. And by way of opening up this part of your book, I want to share this about the plain folk from page 129. And I quote, the, the plain folk are modest and plain in dress, usually avoiding prints, bright colors, laces, fancy buttons, because the Bible tells them to eschew fineries and adorn their spirits instead. They pin their practices to passages in Scripture and see themselves as inhabiting a separate kingdom of the world, but also a step outside of it. Those that shun cars, electricity, or computers do so because they see those technologies as promoting vanity and self-indulgence and eroding social cohesion. Of course, not everyone likes these restrictions. Many flee when they come of age or convert to other practices, but the whole of it endures and prospers despite the outside pressures, end quote. <laughs> you know, I fittingly left the city of Lancaster and I crossed through a covered bridge and it was kind of a, a portal into this profoundly different world. And when I'm, you know, it was spring and they were out with their plows, um, with mules pulling the plow, you know, and some of these young men would tip their straw hat to me and I would tip my 
baseball cap essentially to them. And it was, you know, the 18th century tipping its hat to the 21st century in so many ways. And I had just these really quite fantastic encounters, particularly with a whole litany of Mennonites along the way. The Mennonites are a lot more uh, social and open than the Amish are. And by far, when you speak of centerpieces, the most kind of magical moment and really in the whole walk was when I ran into a group of school kids and they were playing this amazing game of softball in the, behind their school. And at the end of that, at the end of their lunch, we had a conversation and one of the girls stepped forward and, and said that they would like to sing for me. And their teacher said, by all means. And I went into their school and they all got on the risers and they sang these two hymns of the afterlife. And um, it was just such a an amazing thing. And I've, made, I've remained in touch with that class, with the teacher. Um, I've been up there several times. And, you know, plain folk, they're, they're also just very open and frank. And, um, and I guess I would say trusting. And they kind of extended a hand to me, a stranger walking down the road, and we clicked straight off. Behind you, we hear birds. You, you are coming from your beautiful summer retreat in high up in Canada somewhere. Do you want to identify the island? Yes, it's Cape Breton Island, which is a sort of outer third of Nova Scotia. And I hope the crows aren't annoying you. Not at all. In fact, okay. you're bringing welcome nature into this podcast uh, and into the ears of many. And uh, clearly, uh, nature is something that, um, well, you have deep experience with, having reported from 50 different countries as a correspondent, but also having walked and hitchhiked your way, not just across the Northeast, but many places um, what what was it that was so surprising and at least for me as a reader so emotional about those few days with the Mennonites that one particular day at the heart of it just drilling a little bit deeper what is going on there you know I'm not meant to be you know out as an evangelist or an apologist for the Mennonite or Amish way of life I mean you know it's a very patriarchal society and there it has its drawbacks in our eyes but um, what I find quite interesting about it is despite that they have, despite the fact that they have a lot of conformity within their ranks, they're very deliberate in deciding what they're going to conform with on the outside world. And, you know, I don't think many of us make those kinds of decisions, you know, internet. Sure. Great. Netflix. Yeah. Great. Um, whatever is coming down the road in the way of entertainment or technology or whatever. Yeah. Great. Automobiles. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Like airplanes. Yeah. I mean, we just sort of adopt what comes our way for the most part. They are more discerning in that way. And, um, you know, just to have witnessed the time with them for it was brief, but the the kind of orderliness they the way they that they had the um, kind of politeness and openness to me it was it was startling, um, and I, I like that um, that that element of kind of wariness about what it is that um, the modern world is delivering to us, and and that degree of sort of selectivity in going about it. And the thing that's astonishing, which I mentioned in that passage you read, is that these are folks who are living in a lot of ways according to the norms of 200 years ago, and yet they are doing extraordinary well at it financially even. I mean, these are not poor people. These are quite prosperous people. 
Mm. And that really is kind of an, an eye-opener. Well, so were those chapters, and I really appreciated that part of the book, Neil. American history buffs, especially ones in Pennsylvania, will know and remember the name Thaddeus Stevens. Many of the rest of us probably don't. His story, as you told it, had me crying at different points, which is kind of hard when you're reading the book aloud to your wife. <laughs> but, but heroism of the truest kind often leaves me lacrimose. Would you share some about Thaddeus Stevens here now? You know, what was so great is I walked into the town of Lancaster, and this was a place that during, leading up to the Civil War, and even during the Civil War, there were two leading lights of the town, James Buchanan, who was the president up to 1861, and Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens, a very radical Republican at a time when the Republican Party was brand new and was a very radical abolitionist party. He was among the most radical of the abolitionists. He wanted slavery ended right now and at all costs, whatever it took. James Buchanan, the sort of doe-faced, you know, compromising, um, Southern coddling, slaveholder coddling um, president. And they were on the opposite poles. And over all the decades, century or so since then, James Buchanan's house has been meticulously looked after and they've given all the tours, et cetera. Thaddeus Stevens's house, he, by the way, was a member of Congress, the head of the Ways Communities Committee. The force, really, that pushed Abraham Lincoln to finally do the Emancipation Proclamation, the force after Lincoln was assassinated, leading up to the amendments to the Constitution that officially codified the end of slavery and were the first real civil rights portions of the of the Constitution. And, you know, only now kind of is Thaddeus Stevens getting his due. They're now meticulously renovating his house. It's soon going to be a museum for civil rights. And, you know, that kind of give and take of who's honored, who's not honored, who's remembered, who's not remembered, was a big part of the walk. And that portion of it in Lancaster was really ripe for me. And I have family in Lancaster, and I've, I've been to both places now, but I completely concur, and I think my Lancaster cousins would as well, in terms of your read on how each has been recognized over the course of time. Um, I'm thinking about the Mason-Dixon line. You do st- tell the story a little bit of Mason and Dixon. Many of us will know the phrase Mason-Dixon line, but not know anything about Mason and Dixon. Maybe you could give a quick race of that in a sec, but I did want to say that the surprising thing to me about your, your tale about Buchanan and how you've just characterized Pennsylvania is it sounds like the South. It sounds like the South, but Pennsylvania uh, fought on the North, the side of the North. At least that's how I've always thought about it. My Lancaster cousins would say they're Yankees and generally proud, of course, of the way the Civil War turned out. So it was surprising to me to imagine that the South had hiked its way all the way up pretty much to Lancaster and York, one way of reading your book. You know, one of the things that was so fascinating about the walk and why walks show us a world that's profoundly different from driving is you get the subtle kind of micro-nation differences as you go. And you cross the Susquehanna River, and in the time of slavery— And well before that, York was a place that answered to Baltimore. York was a very southern-looking town and county. And Lancaster on the other side was looked to Philadelphia. Right across the river, but profoundly different places. One was very southern. 
the other much, much less so. But, you know, the reason we call Pennsylvania the Keystone State is it was the big middle colony between the six northern and the six southern colonies. And it was this kind of hinge force, the kind of cooling force, the rationalizing force in a lot of ways between those two sides. And it's a role that it plays to this day, really. And, you know, that kind of um, swing state aspect of, to Pennsylvania was very much the case then and is still very much the case now. And you drive through there and you, there's a lot of places where you're going to see Confederate flags out in front of people's houses um, because of that kind of mixed, strange, heterodox nature of the state itself. Mm. And maybe a little bit about who was Mason? Who was Dixon? Who were these people? You know, it was that's such a fascinating story. So they were both, um, you know, surveyors, essentially. The two of them met because in 1741 or thereabouts, there was a Venus, there was a moment when Venus crossed the sun. And they knew in advance, the people who pay attention to these things, that that was going to happen. And they knew, but by using the right kind of techniques from right parts of the world, they could um, better measure what the distance of the earth was from the sun. And so Mason and Dixon were put together by the English government, essentially, to go off on a trip to the South Pacific to take some measurements that were being taken all over the world. Fast forward to um, 15 years later or so, they were sent by the English to just to resolve this malingering border dispute between Maryland and Pennsylvania um, and actually survey the line between those two states. And so that became, you know, known as the line between freedom and slavery um, pretty much after 1820 with the, um, with the Missouri compromise. So that's kind of why we know it now. Fantastic. Thank you for that. At various points, Neil, in your journey, you recognize, and you call it out in your book, the privilege that you, and I would certainly say I in many ways, enjoy, that in subtle but important ways have even, in a sense, enabled you to ramble. Would you would you speak to that here? Yeah, you know, I um, walk uh, you know, into a lot of people's places. I mean, not literally their houses, but there were times when I would walk into somebody's barn and say hello. And there was a farrier in um, Lancaster County where I just walked into the door of his barn when he was, you know, shoeing a horse. And he said, well, what do we have here? And we strike up a conversation. And, you know, the whole walk was really a kind of a pushing of the boundaries of where do you belong? How are you welcomed in different places? And, you know, in doing that, it's all about first impressions and what's the strength of a first impression. And the first impression made by a 60-year-old, you know, white guy walking along who does that kind of stuff well is probably going to break for the most part in his, um, you know, in his favor. But, and I talk about that a lot in the book about how if there is an ultimate privilege, it's the privilege of belonging and the privilege of feeling that you belong in a place. And, um, you know, many people extended that um, belonging sense to me and um, and kind of vice versa. And I, you know, acknowledge that, that that wouldn't be an automatic given for just anybody. On the other hand, I do hesitate to say, therefore, uh, a man of this color or a woman or whatever wouldn't or shouldn't take this walk because I don't 
I just don't think that's the case. A lot of it, I think, is if you're drawn to this kind of thing, if you consider yourself good at it, adept at it, of whatever race you happen to be or whatever gender, then you're probably going to be fine. <laughs> you know, Go for it. Yeah. 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 Well said. Uh, a, a recurring motif in American Ramble is the author himself occasionally fist pumping, <laughs> jumping up in the air, clicking his heels, if you will, going woot, woot. As I've gotten to know you a bit, Neil, you come across most of the time, to me anyway, as pretty mild-mannered. Are you, in fact, a closet exuberant? And how about resharing here one of your fist-pumping moments along the trail? You know, there were so many along the way, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that if you just dramatically simplify your life and, you know, whittle it down to a small backpack worth of stuff and a destination of each day, but a longer destination of where your walk's going to go, that you just are more open to moments of joy. And I, I had quite a few of them. I mean, arriving at the Susquehanna was a big thing. I had spent a lot of time studying the history of that river. It's a beautiful river that we don't often, you know, acknowledge um, as such. And, um, you know, there was an afternoon when I'm walking along and all of a sudden it started to snow, which was so unexpected. And it was just a slanting, almost kind of horizontal snow. And I just had this sort of ecstatic moment because of that. And there were lots of moments like that, actually. And they kind of grew in their scope and in their intensity, I think, as I went, in part because I think an experience like this has an accumulative effect in that way. Um, And I don't know if that means that everybody or anybody who went out, you know, on a walk (laughs) like this is going to have that kinds of feeling. I don't know. Um, It happened quite a lot to me, though. And I'm quite sure some of my listeners are inspired by this conversation. I wouldn't be surprised if I hear a story or two uh, in the coming months or years by somebody who heard us on this podcast and was inspired to go and do a similar walk, him or herself. And I'm curious, Neil, therefore, about some of the practicalities of this. This is a beautifully written book, provocative and reflective at different points. It's history. It's today. It's very personal and yet very national. I really love this book, which is why I'm so pleased to have you kick off Authors in August for me this year. I'm thinking about you know those contingencies on the road, the things you didn't write about, or the planning. For example, you always seem to be staying at a pretty cool bed and breakfast somewhere. This is obviously <laughs> part of your modus operandi. Neil, give us some of the particulars, advice to those who are thinking about a ramble themselves. Yeah, sure. You know, um, you walk at about three miles an hour. Therefore, if uh, some lodging is only five miles away, that's an hour and a half. You have to be deliberate in choosing where you're going to stay. If you're not camping, that is, and I did not plan to camp, which is that much more weight and every other thing. Um, So I had to figure these things out in advance, which is not easy, even in a pretty densely populated um, area like I was walking through. Um, so there was that. I mean, there's obviously the make sure you've got your water bottle with you. Um, I had a lot of um, kind of energy inducing or restoring things to eat along the way that were just sort of stashed in my backpack. I went super light. I had about 17 pounds, including my laptop. Um, I carried, in my case, a fishing, a very lightweight fishing rod because I did do some fly fishing along the way. I had one pair of shoes. It was all purpose. I had no ability per se to 
dress up when I got to places. I, you know, wasn't like I was carrying a, a blue blazer with me or anything like that. But, you know, I had picked the, the clothing I had very deliberately with also with an eye to things that I could wash at night and dry, and hang up and know that they would be dry in the morning, which is important. Um, all pretty sensical stuff for anybody doing this kind of walk. Thank you. And yet very helpful for those of us who have no such experience. So, and and you, you really did uh, pick some delightful places to stay, met some new people. Part of the relationship building that you're doing through the book is those who hosted you and sometimes created special breakfasts or other moments for you along the road. That was a delight to read. We, we're reminded so much of what I was reminded by as I read American Ramble is just the inherent kindness of so many so many people. Often these days, we assume distrustfully that people are not looking out for us. The vast majority of people were driving past or walking past every day all across America, and I would say probably the world, would help. We'll try to help. You know, I agree with that. And I think that was one of the real lessons of the walk, because, you know, we all live so much now in this world that's dominated by um, kind of abstract headlines that we see chirons on the television or, you know, whatever websites that we go to, flat screen news that we tend to digest. And when you go out into the world like that, where you're kind of putting yourself in the way of other people and, um, you know, having to trust in them, but also to be the object, hopefully, of their little moments of generosity, it just shows you that there is still that world that um, is easy to doubt the existence of when um, you're just digesting it through the other means of, um, you know, the news channel means. And, um, you know, I'm not arguing that, therefore, all the news is not true and my walk found the real truth because it's a complicated place. But um, my only, I guess, thing I would say is that there is a distinctly different world out there if you go walk through it. Well, and that is part of the renewal, uh, a, a prominent word on the front cover of your book. And so it's full of, I would say, lots of positivity without ever oozing or trying to be, but just reflecting what you saw. Um, it wasn't always positive. You used the phrase water bottle just a couple of minutes ago. At one point, you tell uh, a parable. You tell a couple of parables, actually, in a memorable early chapter. One of them was the parable of the empty water bottle. Now, maybe no spoilers necessarily. I don't want you to retell the whole thing because it's so beautifully written. But could you kind of lightly speak to the parable of the empty water bottle and maybe the lesson? Sure. I mean, it was a moment where I you know, needed water and I asked a fellow if he could fill my water bottle and he just didn't quite understand that the house he lived outside of was, um, you know, um, replete with a lot of water. He could have filled my water bottle. And his instinct was to guide me elsewhere uh, to a store where I might find water. And it was uh, two miles away. And, you know, it led me both in the walk itself and then in the book to, you know, contemplate and discuss um, the concept of um, hospitality and what kind of hospitality we extend to strangers that might come by and how in our modern American kind of industrialized world, we've made hospitality an industry in its own right. And, um, you know, so in the end, I, I, I fill my water bottle at a Dunkin' Donuts. Oops, I gave it away. Uh, but, um, you know, and it's just, it's just an interesting thing. We are, you know, the history of mankind is one with a lot of norms and even codes of sorts of um, 
how to treat strangers along the way. And, um, you know, we've, we've just become a little bit more aloof to that kind of thing now. Um, and that was just a real example of that. You know, I joked before I set off and people would say, Neil, where are you going to stay? And I would say, oh, I anticipate that farmers will see me walking along the road and they'll offer to put me up in their houses or barns. And of course, I was kidding that, you know, that's a long time ago when that was the norm in America. But um, but on the other hand, as you mentioned, I had lots and lots of people who, when they heard that I was doing this walk, said, oh, this muffins on me or take this coffee or take these cookies or et cetera. It went on and on and on those kind of gestures. So yeah, um, that was good. Fantastic. Well, Neil, we're getting ready to close this week's podcast with a short round of buy, sell, or hold. But before we do, I want to close out the book portion of our interview by asking you to imagine with me briefly an alternate universe, one that resembles this one in every way, with one key exception, that Neil King in that universe never made the journey to New York and so, of course, never wrote a book about it. How is this Neil King most evidently different from that one? (laughs) I don't know. I think there's almost kind of like a chamber, I don't know, within my spirit that was kind of wedged open that remains there and accessible that came about because of this journey. Um, You know, it was the, I've done a lot of traveling. This was the one time where I basically over a month just focused on the place in front of me, the steps ahead of me, that moment of that day, I watched a spring unfold in a way that I never have before. Um, you know, I'd seen 61 springs and I'd never seen a spring like that one. Um, and it just, um, it, it created a, an openness, I, I guess, a kind of a open sort of a, a portion of my spirit that I think has remained changed as a result of that. And, you know, I now tell people they should, if at all possible, carve out their own ramble. And, you know, my directions for it is pick a place that's accessible from your own house, one, two, three, four days, one, two, three, four weeks. Study the terrain in between, the story in between, the history in between, the geology, the route you might take, the settlement patterns of the people who first arrived there, and then set off. And you know, extraordinary things can happen. And you you really realize that there's kind of a magical world out there in the commonplace setting that's accessible to any of us if we go about it with a certain deliberateness and a certain level of attentiveness. And, you know, I've now driven that same patch of land, I don't know, three dozen times <laughs> since the book came out because I've been doing so many book events. And, you know, all the drives I've done up and down I-95 have left not one morsel of a memory behind in my mind because it's just sort of liquid lost time. And, you know, that that walk was um, this kind of time that we all have the ability to carve out that's just a different, it's almost like a time outside of time. It, it, it lives in a higher level of vividness or vitality. And, um, it's there for any of us to, to find and to utilize. So I think in some ways, not only did it change me, but it also kind of hectors me now to get about the next thing and, and have more time like that and not allow too much of this kind of slippery, unremembered time to, um, 
to pass in the meantime. Thank you for your eloquence. Neil, I do note this was your first book. Do you have another book in you? I do, yeah. I mean, you know, we'll see, won't we? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm thinking about another book that will be somewhat similar in terms of kind of intimate ground-based observation, but dig a little bit more deeply into our collective story from a variety of different settings, probably 10 or so um, across the country and kind of geared towards the 2026, 250th anniversary of the country. So, yeah. I look forward to that. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, let's close it out with a short game of buy, sell, or hold. Neil, this is our first time playing together. The simple question is, none of these things is a stock, but if it were a stock, would you be buying, selling, or holding today? And maybe a few sentences as to why. You ready? Yep. All right. First up, hitchhiking, eventually making some kind of comeback. Buy, sell, or hold? Big time buy. And I think there's a lot of ways to do that. And they are doing it in some communities. Um, Park City and some other places I've heard about where you hold up a red sign and it says, I'm, I, I need a ride to Salt Lake or whatever that kind of, you know, within communities. It doesn't have to be cross country. But look, we have Uber, right? It's a kind of <laughs> version of that, strangers getting into strangers' cars. Um, I think there should be a, a rebirth of it. Yes, bye. As a young man say, or our memory of him, if Henry David Thoreau were a stock, would you be buying, selling, or holding? Oh, I think I'd just be kind of holding because it's not as if, you know, Henry David Thoreau has taken off in terms of his influence <laughs> over America, right? I think he's been a little bit of a failure in that regard. Um, are we living according to the edicts of Henry David Thoreau? Simplify, simplify, simplify. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> as I bet you know, he had a successful pencil business. The Thoreau pencil was a, a real fixture in the 19th century. So there was an entrepreneurship and innovation in especially the younger version of the man. I agree. And if you see one of those in a store, by the way, buy it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll keep our eyes out. Okay. Buy, sell, or hold, Neil, changing the names of streets named after Confederate generals. Big time buy. Yeah, I'm very much in favor of um, a more kind of molten version of um, who it is that we recognize and um, memorialize. And um, I have no problem taking down statues and putting up others or changing names of military bases or or streets or whatever. But my main point is, is that we have to put the emphasis on um, validating and real lifting up the forgotten or relatively forgotten heroes like Thaddeus Stevens, that it should be a lifting up and not just a tearing down. I think that part is really important. Well said. Uh, you obviously had one with you. I'm guessing it often wasn't plastic. Buy, sell, or hold water bottles? Uh, big time uh, hold. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a fan of the, the permanent kind um, and refilling those. And I had one with me all the time, though it wasn't always full. Um, but yes, definitely. <laughs> all right, last one for you, Neil King. Uh, if this were a stock, the plain folk living the very same way, again, artificial intelligence, robots, I'm not even sure, in the year 2123, buy, sell, or hold? 
Uh, I would say buy because what's so fascinating about them is that they know how to do actual things. You know, they know how to make things with their hands. They know how to harness a horse. They know how to shoe a horse. They know how to plant the actual crop. You know, these are all the things that we are systematically forgetting. And I also, I think one of the effects of AI is it's going to accentuate what's most human about us and want us, we're all going to want to value the tactile parts of being human um, because the strictly intelligent part of being human is soon going to be co-opted by some outside force, you know? Um, so we're going to want to be able to be the makers of things you can hold in your hands. And they do that. Well, just reflecting back on that discussion near the end, when I asked Neil about fist pumps and whether he's a closet exuberant, he gave an eloquent answer, but I realized he also spoke to it near the end of American Ramble. And I think we should just close this week's podcast and our talk with Neil with me being able to share this lovely paragraph as he feels elation walking across the Bayonne Bridge in New Jersey. And from page 316, I quote, My elation on the bridge or elsewhere along the way may strike some as a little delirious, and it should. The Latins coined the word delirium to describe the state of mind of a person who has strayed from his furrow, from his rut, his narrow groove. The world forms us to follow a furrow back and forth. We do it with a sense of duty. We do it dutifully, as though we owe it to ourselves and to others to be so diligent because duty is itself a debt we must pay. But strange things can happen when you stray from that furrow, even for a month. When you walk from your door not to go to the store, not to go to work, to the dry cleaner, for a run around the park to pick up dinner, but instead to open yourself to the world for many days on end. Those steps can refresh the spirit in unusual ways. They can create, in the best of ways, a delightful delirium. Those steps can renew the mind. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 